Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Hey, today's bittersweet for us. Um, bitter because for Dr. Alan Tennyson and his wife Rhonda and son still, this is their last Sunday with us. And sweet because anytime he preaches, it's sweet. And secondly, because they have now discovered the greatest kept secret in the Twin Cities, and that is Dr. Alan Tennyson. So our headquarters for the district that we belong to, the, the, the movement that we're in, the Assemblies of God, they have literally created a position called uh, the Theological Council for the National Office of the Assemblies of God in Springfield, Missouri. They have contacted him, created an, a brand new position. He's the perfect guy for the job, and he's going to be moving to Springfield, Missouri, their family, uh, maybe this week. I don't know. Um, but soon, this is their last Sunday here with us, and so uh, that's why it's bittersweet, but every time he preaches, it's unbelievable. So Rhonda, still, he's in kids' church this morning. Dr. Tennyson, we're going to miss you. Twelve years ago, they came to Cedar Valley Church, and so as he makes his way forward, it's, hey, why don't we stand to our feet? Let's thank him for the many times he's invested in our life. Thank you so, so, so much. We love you. Pastor Neil wanted to make sure that we, that he lets you know he loves you very much. You've been a great support to this church. And uh, he'll be back to speak a bonus session at Cultivate Conference, so be sure you're here for that. Dr. Tennyson. Thank you, Pastor. It is so much a privilege for me to be here. It has been a wonderful 12 years that my wife and I have been able to attend Cedar Valley. Uh, we moved here from Minneapolis. By the way, I also want to say welcome to everyone here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, wonderful applause uh, to say hello to everyone online, uh, including Pastor Neil, who is watching this morning, who texted me right before service asking me not to screw up. So I, I will do the very best that I can. Uh, we moved here from Los Angeles 12 years ago, 12 years ago this month. Uh, we moved here, uh, started looking at churches in the area. I have a confession to make. We're not from uh, this part of Minneapolis. My wife and I are from Plymouth. Uh, that's where we moved to. And so we were looking at various churches in the area. Because we had moved from Los Angeles, driving 30 minutes to church is no problem. I'm telling you, 30 minutes, that's going to 7-Eleven in L.A., so 30 minutes to church, that was nothing for us. We, we just visited churches in kind of a 30-mile radius. Uh, and we made it here to, uh, or 30-minute uh, drive, we made it to Cedar Valley. Fell in love with the church. Uh, didn't realize that, that this church was, because at the time it was just my wife and I. Uh, we had struggled as a couple to have children. Uh, we had had some strong disappointments while we were here. And God graciously, eight years ago, gave us a son. That son was dedicated to the Lord on this stage. Uh, Easter two years ago or a year ago, I was able to baptize my son right over there on this stage. In a sense, this has been the only church my family has ever known. In fact, I'll be honest with you, my son said to me when we told him we were moving, uh, this is the only church he's ever known, it's the only state he's ever known, where we live is the only house he's ever known. He told us over a year ago that when he graduates high school, he's going to go to North Central University, which is where I teach, uh, he is going to buy that house from us. He had it all worked out. So we told our son we were moving, and his first words were, you have ruined my future. 
And I'm going to tell you a large reason why is this church. This church has been a wonderful family and community, and I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, we are going to look this morning in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and one thing that I want to highlight about Romans, Romans is considered by many people to be the most important letter that the Apostle Paul has written. Uh, it is certainly his longest letter, his largest letter, uh, of the letter that a lot of us pull theology from for everything else about Paul. But what we don't always realize is that the reason Paul wrote the letter to the Romans is it's a fundraising letter. Paul's a missionary. Paul has never been to the church in Rome. He didn't found the church in Rome. That was independent of him. But Rome is the city where all roads lead. He's on his way to Rome because Paul wants to go from Rome to Spain. He wants to preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached. He's never been to this church. He's headed to this area. And he's really writing this letter to introduce himself and to say to the church, will you support me on the way? So Romans chapter 15, verse 24, that's the fundraising portion of the letter. But Paul being Paul cannot help but to deal with the issues that are going on at this church because even though he's writing for support, he's also an apostle of Jesus. And he cannot help but to talk about the issues of this church. What are the issues of this church? This church was founded by Jewish believers. But we know that there was a time when the Roman emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And we're like, well, why did he kick them out of the Rome? The Bible doesn't tell us, but we have a Roman historian, Tacitus, who actually tells us why. Tacitus is writing at the end of the first century. He doesn't know who this is. But he says, the Jews in Rome were heavily debating somebody named Christus. We don't know who Christus is. But it was such a controversy that the Roman emperor told every Jew in Rome they had to leave. So the church is founded by Jews, run by Jews. The Jewish believers leave Rome. Who's left? It's the Gentile believers. The Gentile believers now start running the church. They're doing church their way. When this emperor dies, the Jewish believers come back and they come back to a church that's no longer the way they did church. Can you imagine being in a church where you have more than one culture? And there's conflict because we do church this way. We do church that way. It's actually creating theological problems for them. For one, Jews have identity markers that say this is what marks us as the people of God. We are circumcised. We don't eat certain foods. We don't work on certain days. Gentiles aren't doing that. How are they the people of God? On the other hand, Gentiles are saying we don't have to do these things to be the people of God. Maybe God's moved off from you and now he's moved on to us. At the heart of all of this is really this question, and the question is this, who belongs? Who belongs? Jews show their identity as being part of God's people because of these identity markers. That shows that they belong. Gentiles don't have that. But if Gentiles now belong without these identity markers, does that mean that God has moved on from Jews? And if he's moved on from Jews, then how is God faithful? Because he made a promise to them throughout the Old Testament. This whole letter is written to deal with this question of who belongs and to really answer the larger question, is God still faithful? And Paul's answer from the very beginning is this. The faithfulness of God is the reason why Jews and Gentiles belong together. 
The faithfulness of God is not because God has chosen one over another or God's chosen one is now demanding another to change. It's because God's faithfulness has brought both together. Paul begins this letter by saying, Gentiles have sinned. And it's because of their sin that God is going to punish the world. Jews listening to this would have been like, yep, that's right. Gentiles are terrible. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Paul says, and you Jews are no better. Because you have the law, but you haven't been able to keep the law. You sin as well. So that we get to this incredible statement, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And then Paul reminds us that God did not give the law to Israel so that Israel could be saved. God gave the law to Israel because Israel was already chosen by God. Not because of the law, but because Abraham had faith. The relationship between God and Israel didn't start with the law, it started with faith. The same faith that God can give to Gentiles. Because at the end of the day, having God's law doesn't make us the right people. How many know you can have the law, you can know the right thing to do, but you don't do it? That was our entire sermon last week. When we know what to do and we don't do it, who can save us? Paul ends this letter, this this chapter 7, by saying, who can save me from the fact that I want to do certain things, but then I do the opposite? I have in my idea, in my mind, the law of God. I have in my heart my own sinful desires, and this always wins out over this. Who can save me? And now we come to our passage. Romans chapter 8 Verse number one, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to read here the first four verses. We're not going to stand up the entire service just out of respect for the word at the beginning. Romans chapter eight, verse one. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. By giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. You may be seated. So my wife and I, about 12 years ago this month, moved into our first house in Minneapolis. Uh, It was our first house ever because there's no way we could afford a house in Los Angeles. We moved to Minneapolis. We move our stuff in. And when we were done, we were sweaty and we were hungry. So what do sweaty, hungry people do? They decide not to go to a fancy restaurant. They decide to go to a fast food place because people don't care there if you're sweaty and you're hungry. We didn't know what was close to us because we had just moved into the house. I looked it up and I realized there was a fast food place close to our house, one we had never heard of before because it's not in Los Angeles. And you can show this first picture here. This was the first time we ever went to Culver's. Culver's has become, next to Chick-fil-A, our second favorite place to go. It is now our go-to for our family. We always want to go to Culver's. How many of you love Culver's? 
Okay, right there, this is gonna be commercial for Culver's. How many of you know that different regions of the country have different fast food places that's that region's fast food place? Here, it may be Culver's. If you're in Texas, it's Whataburger. If you're in California, let's go to the next picture. It's In-N-Out. In-N-Out is the place to go. Now, of course, In-N-Out is known for their public confession of Christianity, from the printed scripture verses on their products to the open witness of their executives. What you might not know is the story of In-N-Out. I'm going to go to this next picture here. This is the president of In-N-Out. Her name is Lindsay Snyder. Lindsay Snyder's grandparents started the business. Her dad, after their death, became the president, but her dad had a drug addiction. Uh, because of this addiction, he died when she was very young. She actually inherited the money from the family business, and when she was in her 20s, she was the youngest female billionaire in America. She was also on her third marriage, a marriage that was abusive, like her dad, she also struggled with drug addiction. And if I was to tell you her story, you might say to yourself, man, In-N-Out has such a beautiful picture of a Christian business, and yet we have this family that has these incredible struggles. Well, the nice thing to say about Lindsay, who is now the president of In-N-Out, is in her third marriage that was failing, she found her way back to God. She has an incredible testimony. She's remarried for a fourth time to a wonderful, godly man, and together they've started a discipleship ministry. But I like this illustration because when we're told in Scripture there's no condemnation, we might say, what does that actually mean? And my illustration for that is simply this. Condemnation is when you're out rather than in. Condemnation is when you are out. You are out of options. You are out of hope, you are out of a future, you are out of luck, you are out of everything. Condemnation is when someone shuts the door on you. How many have ever been in a conversation with someone and they basically shut the door on you in the conversation? I always say to my Christian brothers and sisters who are leaders in whatever field, I say never have a conversation with someone that doesn't end with hope. Because I've been in conversations with people where they basically say harsh things and then the conversation is over and you walk away sometimes as an employee thinking, what did that mean? Well, what's the next step? There was no hope here. Never as a believer have a conversation with anyone that doesn't end in hope. But no condemnation for us means this. It doesn't mean you're out. You can go to the next slide here. It means your end. Your end. No condemnation means that the very thing that should have condemned us, which was sin, sin which is destroying the world that God has created, sin which by its very nature means we can't exist with God, has been done away with in Christ so that now we have no condemnation. I sometimes think of it like this. You think of being the part of the people of God, and it's like being behind a rope at the best club in the world, and you're hoping somebody will let you in. Who's in and who's out? The entire gospel is about Jesus going to those who are outsiders, who've been told they're not in, and showing them they are in, showing them that they can be set free, showing them that they can belong. In Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. 
We have hope. We have a future. We have options. God doesn't shut the door on us. But this is kind of a weird way to begin this chapter. And you know why? Because when you're reading this, and I always want to highlight, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. Those were added much later. They're like page numbers, so you can find your place. So when you're reading this letter, don't think of chapters and verses. Realize this letter would have had none of that. It would have been read all together in front of the church all at once. So Paul would have just said to them, who's going to save me? I want to do what God wants in my mind, but I keep doing the wrong thing because of my heart. Therefore, there's now no condemnation. And you ask yourself the question, well, why? The therefore seems to imply there's something that comes before it that proves it. But Paul's just told us that we don't do what God wants. We don't obey God. We know what God wants. We still can't do it. So why is there no condemnation? Because Paul's whole point in chapter 7 is we deserve condemnation. We keep doing the wrong things. Why is there no condemnation? How does Paul say in most translations, Therefore, it's the next 16 verses. The way I would describe it in our context is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's big so what. How many know sometimes we began sermons in this church with a big so what? And the rest of the sermon is showing you how we get to that so what. The rest of these verses is showing you how we get to that so what. How is it that we who are sinners, that we who struggle, that we who aren't doing the right things, how is it that there's no condemnation? And Paul says it's this reason. There's actually three laws at work. Number one, there's the law of God. The law of God means this is what God has given us to show us what he wants. The law of God is good. The law of God is right. The law of God is not something Paul's criticizing. The only problem with God's law is that it's external to us, and because it's on the outside, it can't change us on the inside. How many of you would say, there are times in my life I know the right thing to do, and I don't do that? Can I give you an... Okay, let me ask you a different way. How many of you are married? How many of you have ever had your spouse ask you to change something about how you live in the house? How many of you still don't do that? (laughs) Come on now, be honest. It might be that you keep forgetting to put the toilet seat in the right position. It might be that you don't pick up your clothes when you should. It might be that dishes go in the dishwasher, not the sink. It might be that you keep the refrigerator door open too long. By the way, how many know I could go on and on and some of you would have things to add to this list? In fact, can I give you really quickly Five rules for sharing living space with someone. Right now, I'm going to give you five rules. Write this down, because this could save you. Five rules for sharing living space with someone. First rule is this. Put away whatever needs to be put away. Second rule. Someone's about to get revival. Second rule. Pick up whatever needs to be picked up. Third rule. Return everything to its rightful position. If the seat should be down, it's down. If the door should be closed, it's closed. Fourth rule, 
always clean up after yourself. And you want to know the fifth rule? Okay, let me start this again. Put away what should be put away, pick up what should be picked up, turn everything to its rightful position, clean up after yourself, and here's number five, as best as you can help it, don't create more work for someone else. How many know those are five good rules? How many of you hearing me give you those rules might even say, man, I bet that guy's good to live with. I mean, he knew those rules off the top of his head. He must be a wonderful husband, and I am. But you could ask my wife how many times I don't pick up what I should pick up. How many times I don't put away what I should put away. How many times I don't close what I should have closed. How many times I don't clean up where I should have cleaned up. How many times I create more work for her when I shouldn't have. Here's the thing, I know what to do, but that doesn't mean I do it. God has given us his law, and what is God's law? In one sense, it's simply this. It's God showing us how to live with him. If we want a relationship with God, if we want God in our lives, if we want to be healthy and holy and all the things that come with that, God shows us what it takes. Here's how to live with me. And yet knowing it doesn't mean that we do it. In fact, Paul says this is the second sense of the law. There's a law of God, but when the law of God comes into contact with our sinful hearts, we see another law at work, which is the law of sin. Now, in the NLT, it will use power. In the Greek, it actually says law because it's wordplay. Nomos, law. There is a law of sin at work. That law of sin is this. I do what I want because I want it right now. How many have ever wondered, why did I just do that? And the answer is, because you wanted it right now. It's what your body wanted. It's what your flesh wanted. It's what you wanted in the moment. And you allowed that moment to dictate what was actually better for you. That's the law of sin. And if it was just a matter of God's law, which is good, but it's external, and because it's external, it's powerless, versus the law of sin, which is bad, but it's internal, and because it's internal, it's powerful, the law of sin will always win out over the law of God. Because what my heart wants is not what God wants. And yet Paul says there is a third sense of the law. There's the law of God, there's the law of sin, but there's also the law of the Spirit. That's our hope, that God will give us his Spirit. And when Paul says this, he's pulling from a promise in the Old Testament, and the promise was this. Israel in the Old Testament had violated God's law. They had violated it so much, so egregiously. In fact, I'm going to just throw this out here. You can read through the Old Testament, and you can actually track how Israel in a major way violates all Ten Commandments before they go into exile like Israel checks off everything. Did you break this? Yes. Did you break this? Yes. Did you break this? Yes. And God finally takes away their land. God takes away their place as a people. And in the Old Testament, God makes a promise to Israel, and the promise is this, one day I will restore you. One day I will bring you back. One day you will be my people again. But now the question is this, well, what's to keep us from sinning again? How many know if you have a woman who keeps bringing in an adulterous husband, every time she lets him come back in, people ask the question, 
Well, is he going to mess up again? Israel kept sinning against God. God forgives them. He brings them back home. What's going to keep Israel from sinning again? And what's the answer? God makes this promise in the Old Testament. One day, I'm going to give you my spirit so that you're going to want to obey me from the inside out. I'm no longer going to give you a law that's written on stone. I am going to take my very finger and I'm going to write my law on your hearts. And I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And my spirit is going to be the one to do this. So there's this incredible promise in the Old Testament that God will make us his people by giving us his law from the spirit of God. Not external, but internal. Good and powerful. And Paul says this in Romans 8. We have this law of God. We have this law of sin. But there is a law of the spirit of life that sets us free from the law of sin and death. Why? Because God knows what it is to obey him. And he gives us his spirit to work from the inside out. That means that being a Christian is really about living in the spirit of God. Now, by the way, I'm going to just be honest with you. That was the introduction. <laughs> in the letter to the Romans, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in three verses before he gets to chapter 8. When he gets to chapter 8, he talks about the Holy Spirit in at least every other verse. Why? Because he can't describe what it's like to be a follower of Jesus without talking about the life in the Spirit. So if you're going to stay with me very quickly, I want to give you four things the Holy Spirit does for us in Romans chapter 8. To belong to God, to be set free by Christ, is to be in the Spirit of God. What is it that the Holy Spirit does for us? Number one, we are free by the Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. God now gives us the freedom to obey him. And you can experience this in your life. Too many times as believers, we think, and part of it's because we're Americans, we think freedom is its own end. The fact that we're free means mission accomplished. But we don't ask the question, what is freedom for? It's one thing to be freed from something, but how should we be using our freedom? It's the Holy Spirit who frees us, so what? So that we can obey God. The Holy Spirit allows us to experience this freedom because sin manipulates us. Sin corrupts us. We cannot please God when we're controlled by sin. But the spirit of life sets us free. The spirit of life sets us free. The Spirit frees us. Secondly, we are led by the Spirit. We're set free by the Spirit. We're also led by the Spirit. I'm not going to read this, but Romans 8, 5 through 9 tells us that if we're dominated by our sin nature, we're going to do the things that don't please God. If we're controlled by the Spirit, we're going to do things that do please God because now our minds are thinking about God. Let me give you an illustration of this. When it says we're controlled, it doesn't mean that we are puppets. What it means is this. When I first started uh, uh, hanging out with my wife, my wife and I were friends for a long time before we got married. Uh, I met her at church, which is a great place to meet someone. 
I found myself one day going through the airport, traveling somewhere, and I went into a gift shop, and I found out that I was looking for a gift for Rhonda without even realizing I was looking for a gift for Rhonda. Rhonda was just a friend of mine. I had other female friends. I'm not that socially awkward. <laughs> but for some reason, I started thinking about her, and I started wanting to find a gift for her. I still remember the first thing I ever bought her when we were just friends. She's the only one I bought anything for. I get back to the California. I give it to her. By the way, we've been packing the house. Two weeks ago, I found that she still has that thing, which means I still got it, right? So she still has that thing. <laughs> now, here's the point. We were just friends, but Rhonda was dominating my thinking. We were just friends, but I realized that everything I looked at, I was thinking about her. When we're controlled by the sinful nature, we only think about what the sinful nature wants. But when we are dominated by the Spirit of God, when we are oriented by God's Spirit, it means we're being led by the Spirit of God. It means we start thinking about what God wants just because that's what we want. I walk into the gift shop and what can I buy God today? I walk into the coffee shop and who does God want me to talk to today? I look at how I'm handling my finances and how can I use this money for God today? When our minds are controlled by the Spirit, it means our thinking is now oriented towards God. The reason we struggle is that I'm not thinking about God when I sin. How many know that you don't do that typically? I don't think about Jesus and then go out and sin. But the Spirit brings my mind back to God. I'm oriented to God. I'm being led by the Spirit. And when I lean into that, I can suddenly do what God wants organically, freely, because it's what I want. I'm freed by the Spirit. I'm led by the Spirit. And as we come now to Romans 8, 10 through 13, we're told that we have life in the Spirit. Because we've been made right with God, the Spirit gives us life. Now, I think I've said this before as an example, but I want to give it again. How many of you ever been in an argument with someone? Or let me say it this way. How many of you are married? Okay, so you've been in an argument with someone. How many of you in the middle of that argument ever have that horrible realization that you're wrong? Like right in the middle, you're going at it, you're going back and forth, suddenly the light clicks on, you see the other person's point, you realize you're wrong, and when that happens, you have a choice to make. And the choice is this, you can either adult up and admit you're wrong and the other person was right, or you can suddenly shift the argument to being about something where you are right, <laughs> and we really weren't talking about this other thing at all, and try to win that argument. One of the worst things in the world is finding out you're wrong in the middle of an argument. One of the greatest things in the world is when someone tells you you're right. I've never had someone just look you in the eyes and say you were right. That is an awesome, awesome feeling. In fact, it's so awesome. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you right now and just look them right in the eyes and say you're right. Now I'm watching. Because I, I've used this analogy before. One time I was saying this at a church. 
talking about, I want you to look at someone, tell the other person you're right. There was on the third row, a married couple right in front of the pulpit. The wife looks at her husband. She looks back at me and she goes, whatever went on, I'm not doing that this morning. Imagine what it feels like when God looks at us and says to us, you're right. Not because we won an argument with God, but because God has won us and he says to us, you are right with me. If we are right with God, we have life in the spirit. And Paul says, not only that, the spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same spirit we're talking about in you. Meaning if we have the spirit of God who raised Jesus, we have an assurance that we will be raised. God isn't just giving us life now. He's not just setting us free now. He's not just freeing us from the power of sin. God frees us from the power of death. Even death itself can't hold us anymore. How do I know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead and I have the same spirit he did. We have life in the spirit. It's an incredible promise, right? In our past, we're set free. In our present, we're being led. But in our future, we have a promise of resurrection. All of that is governed by the spirit of God. Our past, our present, and our future all are governed by the Spirit of God. But having given this wonderful promise, how many of you know that some of us, some of us might feel, but that's not what my Christian life feels like. I'd like to know that I'm set free, but I don't feel like I'm free. I'd like to know that I'm being led by the Spirit, but I don't know that I'm being led. I wanna have hope that there is a future for me but I don't know that for sure. That's what takes us to the last passage. Romans chapter eight, verses 14 through 18. Paul says this, the spirit of God is a spirit of adoption. That we are not afraid as if we are slaves, but we have the confidence as being children who've been adopted by God. It is by the spirit of God that we can call God Father. In fact, he says here, Abba father because the word Abba was Aramaic for father and it's very likely that this word was used by Paul because this is the word that Jesus used Abba when he called God his father and because Jesus used it it became the word of the church so that even Paul is writing in Greek to an audience that speaks Greek they all know what the word Abba means it means father once I was out at a party and I saw this father and son playing. And the dad was hiding behind trees, trying to kind of jump out and scare his little boy. And I remember at one moment, he hid behind a tree. The boy actually got scared, a little tiny boy, didn't see his dad. They weren't speaking English. I don't know what language they were speaking. But when the boy started to cry, the dad immediately jumps out from the tree. No, 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 I'm here. And the boy says this one simple word as he runs into his father's arms. I don't know what language it was, but I know I can recognize the word for daddy. I know it was the word for daddy. The spirit 
bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are freed by the spirit, we are led by the spirit, we have life in the spirit, but we're also affirmed by the spirit. When you doubt your place, you doubt your role, the Holy Spirit will remind you that you have been set free, that you belong to Jesus, that you have a promise of life. You are a child of God and God is a good father. And it's because of this, because we are free, because we are being led, because we're being affirmed, because we have this promise of life, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God hasn't just removed the rope to let us in. God has taken down the rope altogether. Everyone belongs. Everyone is welcome. He has given us his son so we can be free of sin. He has given us his spirit to take us to eternal life. Our life in Christ is a life in the spirit of God. And this morning I want to pray with you. Our big so what is simply this. Life in the spirit means life forever. Life in the spirit means life forever. The life you've started on as a believer in the spirit is a life that will remain in the spirit through eternity. The spirit will be the source of our life. But the big now what is how do we live this out in our lives? And we simply live this out by practicing living by the spirit. We have to learn that the Holy Spirit is already present. If you are someone who has believed in Jesus, that's because of the Holy Spirit. If you're someone who's ever been disgusted by your behavior, that's actually because of the Holy Spirit. If you've had those experiences, you've already felt the Holy Spirit at work in you. What we have to do is learn to lean into that. It's like going to the gift shop and buying that gift for Jesus. Lean into that orientation. Lean into that desire for God. Let the Spirit lead you more. Trust in Jesus. Depend on the Spirit. And understand that as Christians, we can obey God freely. So here's our promise. Jesus saves us. The Spirit sets us free. And we can be the people God wants not by our own effort, because God makes it possible. So now I want to ask you this question. How many of me here say, I want to be the person God wants? I want to be the person God wants. I want to be the person who obeys what God wants me to obey, becomes what God wants me to become, experiences the life God wants me to have that is possible by the Spirit of God. So I want to pray for you this morning. And I want to pray for three things. For those who simply need salvation, you've never trusted in Jesus to begin with. This morning, I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus. For those who are struggling with your life, you're struggling with being a Christian. You're struggling with what God wants you to do. You say, I know it, but I don't feel it. I want to pray with you this morning. And I want to pray for all of us that we would learn a greater dependence on the Spirit of God. The Spirit is already at work in our lives. It's simply a matter of us learning to lean into that. The Spirit is already at work.